I'm really glad that we sung that song before the uh, end of the sermon tonight because it helps us to go ahead and focus our minds on that tremendously important question, why not tonight? Why not tonight? Maybe there's already somebody here who's been thinking this week about becoming a Christian. Maybe you've been thinking about surrendering your life to Him. And I know the kind of culminating effect gospel meetings can have. It just kind of builds on you more and more as the week goes on. And it would be our greatest hope tonight that someone would decide to give their lives to the Lord tonight, to come to Him and to obey His gospel. The song will be sung in a little while that says, Why not now? But I might focus on the fact that it says, Why not now? <laughs> you could interrupt me right now as far as I'm concerned. I'd be glad to stop everything and just help you to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. Or maybe even during the sermon. If it hits you during the sermon, stop me. We'll just stop everything. And uh, there could be nothing more important that we could ever do tonight than to help you in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're ready to assist you in that in every way that we can. If you would take your Bibles tonight and turn to Acts the 8th chapter. Acts chapter 8. Most of us probably know right away, even as we turn there, what we're going to be looking at. We all know the story, most of us do, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. He was serving the queen. And yet he had been to Jerusalem to worship. The Bible says, though, that he was not through. He, he was a very inquisitive man. He wanted to know more. He's reading from his scriptures as he returns home. And he's reading from Isaiah 53. And he's reading that. And, he, and he's kind of concerned about it because he doesn't really understand what it's about. God has Philip to go, and he lets him know that he's traveling. He's on this road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he lets him know, you go and you'll find him there. And so they intercept, they cross at a very important point in life, really. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless some man guides me? We find that he was reading from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verse 32 and 33 says, the place in the scripture that he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So he's reading about this lamb that was led to the slaughter. We talked uh, in a recent sermon about how that Jesus was proclaimed by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God as he saw Jesus on the horizon. He comes to understand through the preaching of Philip and the teaching of Philip that that's talking about Jesus. And Philip evidently taught him how to respond to the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He no doubt taught him that you too must die. You too must bury the old man and you must rise to newness of life. He went to Isaiah 53. He went to the very place where the man was. And by the way, that's a good thing to do. Just start where people are. Start where they are and go from there. And so he goes where he's reading. And the Bible says that he preached Jesus to him. Look at verse 35. It says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. I want to tell you, that's a sermon I would have loved to have heard. I would have loved to have heard all the things that they must have discussed about. I'm sure that it involves so very much as he by detail told him all about Jesus. And there can be no doubt whatsoever that in preaching Jesus to him, 
He also taught him what Jesus said one must do in order to be saved. Because the next thing he asked is a question about salvation. So there's no doubt that Philip talked to him about what the Lord said one must do to be saved. You may remember in Mark the 16th chapter, verse 15 and 16, Jesus had said to his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. He who believeth and is baptized shall be saved. When you come to verse 36, he asked a major question. The question he asked was, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip answers his question, and there is an immediate response. Look at verse 37. Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. He baptizes him. And verse 39 says, They came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Can a man hear one lesson and become a Christian? Absolutely. So far as I know, this man has heard one sermon concerning Jesus Christ, and he obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my desire that you'll do the same thing tonight. What I want to do tonight in tonight's lesson is I want to simply take his question, and I want you to make his question your question. As was said in the prayer, and even as was said as we were going into the song service, ask yourself, what hinders me from being baptized? What we're going to do is we're going to break this down, just one little word at a time, and look at various things about this question. First of all, he said, what hinders me from being baptized? That tells me that the eunuch understood that baptism was absolutely essential in him being saved. He knew that it was crucial. I mean, did you pick up on the, uh, of the excitement of the moment, the moment and the immediacy of the moment? He said, basically, see, here is water. It's almost like he's saying, wait a minute. Here's water right here. Maybe we could do this right now. Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? I want to tell you, this is not a man who thinks he's already saved. And he's asking when he can have his baptismal ceremony. That's not what you have here at all. The fact that there are no delays in the Bible concerning baptism says something. When you're reading through your New Testament, you'll see every time in regard to baptism that there are no delays. It'll say things like that they obeyed the same hour. It'll say they obeyed that day. Or it may even say they did it immediately. There are no delayed baptisms in the New Testament. And that's important to know because there are so many today that teach that baptism is not essential. And you'll hear of things like maybe them having a, a delayed baptism, maybe a, a quarterly baptism, where what we're going to do is we're going to save up everybody who has accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, and we'll just lump it all into one service, and that'll be about a quarter from now, and we'll get that done. That's not what you see in the Bible. No delayed baptisms in the Bible. And, you know, we're often made to wonder why people would think that baptism is not essential to salvation. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how would God say it? If God was wanting to say it in such a way that you could not miss it, how would he say it? 
Well, somebody says, well, maybe what God ought to do is maybe he could just say that baptism is the moment, the moment when your sins are remitted. Well, he did. In Acts, the second chapter, look at verse 38. Peter on that day preaches to those souls at Pentecost. And they were pricked in their hearts when they realized that they had crucified the Son of God. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? I heard one time about a preacher who was preaching from that text. And he said, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, there's nothing to do. Jesus has done it all. And that is true when it comes to the ground of our salvation. Jesus has indeed done it all. But there is a response to it. And Peter did not say, oh, there's nothing to do. When they said, what shall we do? He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So maybe he could say that baptism is the moment our sins are remitted. He said that. Well, maybe he could be even plainer than that. Maybe he could put it in language like this. Maybe he could say that baptism is the moment our sins are washed away. Well, he said that too. In Acts, the 22nd chapter, in verse 16, Saul of Tarsus had met the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was told to go into the city, and he would be told what he must do. And in Acts 22, in verse 16, when Ananias arrived, in verse 16, he said this to him, Now, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord couple of things you see in that it shows that baptism is the moment our sins are washed away it also shows that he was not already a christian because otherwise he would have had nothing to wash away even though he believed in jesus enough to go into the city and inquire as to what he must do his sins were not washed away yet he was told to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins well we say here well maybe he could just say that baptism is the moment that he forgives me of all of my trespasses. Well, he said that too. Look at Colossians, the second chapter and verse 13. Colossians, the second chapter and verse 13. In the context of talking about baptism, he mentions in verse 12 how that we are buried with him in baptism. But then in verse 13, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. And again, that's in the context of baptism. So Jesus is saying here, or Paul is saying through the teaching of our Lord, that baptism is the moment he forgives me of all of my trespasses. Well, maybe he could just say that if we believe and are baptized, that we'll be saved. Well, as you know, he said that. We read that a moment ago, Mark 16 and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized should be saved. Well, well, maybe he could just say that baptism is what puts us into Christ. That baptism puts you into Christ where salvation is. Well, he said that too. Look at Galatians, the third chapter and verse 27. Galatians, the third chapter and verse 27. Beginning in verse 26, he says, You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I think all of us understand that there is no salvation outside of Christ. 
We have to be inside of Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. A similar passage in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, I'll just refer to it. But it mentions there that by one spirit, you were all baptized into one body. And that body that it's speaking of there is the body of Christ. So one verse says we're baptized into Christ. The other verse says we're baptized into the body of Christ. It's the same thing. God said that baptism is the moment that we are put into Christ. Well, maybe he could just really expound upon this thing. Maybe he could say, being very graphic, and maybe he could show that baptism is the moment that we die. It is the moment that we bury that old man of sin and we rise to new life. Well, he said that too. Look at Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. It says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I may pick up verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and we should no longer be slaves of sin. So here comes a man, he's placed into a watery grave, we bury that old man, good riddance, we say goodbye to him and all of his deeds, and we rise new creatures to walk in newness of life. Maybe God could just be graphic and say it that way. Well, that's what he did. Why don't you just come on out with it, God, and just say that baptism saves you? If you would just say, baptism now saves you, why don't you just say that? Well, he said that too. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. 1 Peter chapter 3. It talks about in verse 20 how that in the days of Noah, a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. He then says in verse 21, the King James Version says, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Could you get any plainer than that? Baptism doth also now save us. And so really when you look at all that, you just say to yourself, I don't know how God could have said it. I don't know how in the world he could have put it any plainer than he has already done it. Certainly we understand the crucialness of faith. In the death of Jesus Christ, without which we would have no hope whatsoever. We talked about that last night. We understand that faith leads us to repent of our sins, to want to turn from them, to put them behind us. It includes confessing Jesus as the Son of God. And yes, it includes being baptized. No wonder the eunuch was excited. (laughs) No wonder he says, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? His excitement is all in that. And you have to be careful when you preach, you might pop the cover off the back of the the clicker there. He's excited about that moment. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, let's talk about this one. What hinders? What hinders? The word hinder means to keep back or to hold back, to get in the way of. 
to make it difficult, to stop, or to prevent. And so I want to talk about that for just a moment. You know, the Bible, I don't know if this is really a word, but the Bible talks a lot about hinderers. There are people who get in the way. There are people who try to hold you back, and they will literally strive to stop you from being baptized into the body of Christ. Let's talk about some of those for a moment. The chief hinderer, no doubt, is Satan himself. Does it make sense to you that if baptism is the moment that we are saved, and it's the moment that we enter into Christ, that the chief hinderer would be Satan? He does not want you coming here. He does not want you burying the old man of sin. He doesn't want that old man put away. He wants him to keep doing what he's been doing. He does not want you to rise to walk in newness of life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul makes a statement here that's pretty interesting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18. He talks to them about how he desired to come to them. Look at what it says in verse 18. Therefore, I wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. My version says, but Satan hindered us. If you're by chance reading from the New International Version, it literally says that Satan blocked our way. We were wanting to do this. We wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered. Satan blocked our way. And you can rest assured that he's going to strive to do everything he can to do that. He's a hinderer and he's been that way from the very beginning. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus has some strong words about Satan. He's talking to some Jews who have been rejecting him. They're claiming to have Abraham as their father. Jesus says, no, Abraham's not your father. If Abraham was your father, you would do the works of Abraham. But in John 8 and verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Do you hear what he says about Satan? He was a murderer from the very beginning. You know how Satan was a murderer? He kept Adam and Eve from doing what was right. He was trying to kill their souls. In the Garden of Eden, he's been a murderer from the very beginning. And it says he'll lie to you. He does not stand in the truth. Years ago, I don't know who it was, I heard about it. There was an old-timer who preached a sermon called The Knot in the Devil's Tail. Except it wasn't the K-N-O-T in the T-A-I-L. It was the knot, the N-O-T, in the devil's tail, T-A-L-E. And what he was pointing out is that Satan is masterful at throwing knots into the Word of God or either taking out a knot. What had God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2? God had said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Not hard to understand. What did Satan say? You shall not surely die. One word changes the whole thing. And as we said earlier, it's very common for people today to teach that, uh, you know, you're just saved by faith only. All you have to do is just have faith in Jesus. 
But yet James chapter 2, the Bible says, we see that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So you see what the devil does? He loves to throw in a knot if he needs to or take out a knot. He's always got a knot in the devil's tail. And that's all it takes to keep people from obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is the chief hinderer. He's the one behind all the rest of them. This next one is going to be kind of interesting. Do you realize that preachers... Do you realize that preachers can be used by the devil to obstruct the way? And it's happening all over the place. There are men who will stand up in their coat and tights like I have tonight... And they'll hinder you in doing this very thing. They'll teach that baptism has absolutely nothing to do with salvation and ridicule those who teach that. Sometimes they are deliberate in doing that. Other times they are quite sincere, but they still teach that it's not essential. I've always said it doesn't matter whether you're deliberate or whether you are sincere and unintentional. It ends up the same. People are not being taught the truth on that subject. And if their teaching is false, the devil smiles all the way and says, if the blind leads the blind, they'll both fall into a ditch. You know what you need to do? (laughs) You need to read your Bible for yourself. (laughs) And don't just listen to what a preacher says. Don't even just listen to me tonight. Make sure that every time I tell you something tonight, that my finger's on the verse. If the finger's on the verse, go with it. But make sure that you're being taught the truth. In Acts 17 and verse 11, we're told about those in... Berea, and how that they were noble. And it says in verse 11, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so we need to be searching the Scriptures to make sure that the things that we're being taught are so. You say, well, I know brother so-and-so. Now, brother so-and-so... He wouldn't lead us wrong. Well, he might. And again, Satan loves that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a passage that teaches us that Satan has preachers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. Paul talks about those who had come in among the church at Corinth. And he says, they are false apostles. Verse 13. They are false apostles, deceitful workers... They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers... Does Satan have ministers? That verse says he does. It is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. He says... They can, he can take preachers and make them people who teach what's not right and lead souls astray. There's a few examples I've known of through the years in, in my preaching. I know of a man in Florence, Alabama who left uh, one particular church because he found out it wasn't right. And then he went to another denomination and he found out that wasn't right. And he just kept changing as he needed to. He had a friend in college who challenged him some from the scriptures to read some things. And they read from Acts chapter 16 about how the Philippian jailer was baptized immediately. And it was after midnight. And he went back to his preacher and he asked him this question. 
He said, would we baptize somebody immediately? Would we baptize somebody immediately even after midnight? And his answer was, well, no, you know, we... We wouldn't, uh, we, wouldn't have to hold, we wouldn't have to wouldn't have to do that. We could hold on that to a little bit later. Truth, this is what he said next. Amazing. He says, I realize that we have substituted the sinner's prayer in the place of baptism. That's what he said. I realize that we have substituted the sinner's prayer in the place of baptism. He says, but, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that that really matters all that much. We do baptize. But isn't that a strong admission? In the place where the Bible says baptism, we have taken that out and we have substituted the sinner's prayer. Preachers can get in the way of the truth. I've got a, a preacher friend. Many of you know him. His name is Gary Sandusky. Gary tells this story quite often about how that when he uh, got tired of sin, he said, I just started reading my Bible, and that was hard for him. He, he, was, he couldn't read very well, but he, he was struggling to read his Bible. And there were things that he was discovering in his Bible, and so he'd just, keep, he'd just visit this church and visit that church and visit another church. And one particular night, he went to a place, and he told that preacher, he said, you know, he said, I've been reading my Bible and it just looks like to me that the Bible teaches that a person has to be baptized to be saved. And that preacher told him, he said, well, that's what I believe. He said, I read my, my, my Bible and I, I do believe that it teaches that one has to be baptized to be saved. And Gary said, well, well why don't you teach it? He said, well, he said, I'm a, I'm a Methodist preacher and he said, I get paid to, to preach Methodist doctrine. And so that's what I do. But I do believe the Bible teaches that a person has to be baptized to be saved. And Gary said, well, you know, I just don't think that I'd want to go where a man doesn't preach what he believes the Bible teaches. He said, well, you don't have to go here if you don't want to. You can go somewhere else if you want to. And Gary said, well, I, I think I will. <laughs> you know, why would a man not preach what he believes the Bible teaches? We saw the other night in our sermon that Paul said, I believed, therefore I spoke. That's what we ought to do. If you believe it, speak it. And yet preachers can get in the way of that kind of thing, of all things. And then sometimes friends can get in the way of a person obeying the gospel. Sometimes friends can almost forbid you and just come right out and say, you better not do that. In Acts chapter 10, evidently there were some who might do that. In Acts chapter 10, Peter had, had uh, gone to the house of Cornelius, and he's teaching Cornelius, this Gentile. And he knew that the Jews wouldn't like it very much at all, these Gentiles being taught the gospel. But in verse 47, he says this, Can any man forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Do you notice that? Can anyone forbid water? Now think about this a moment. Why would anybody want to forbid it? If baptism doesn't mean anything at all, then what would it matter? Well, Peter knew they know what it means. And so somebody might want to forbid water. Because if you baptize those Gentiles, they're going to be in the same body that we're in. And we just can't have that. But Peter says, can we do that in, in, in view of everything that we've seen? Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? 
Evidently, no one spoke up. And so the Bible says in the next verse that he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've often wondered how many people clearly see the truth and they want to obey, but their friends get in the way. Their friends work to confuse their minds and they work to do all kinds of things and friends get in the way. I want to tell you, when you look at Acts chapter 13, you're going to see how God feels about people who get in the way of somebody who wants to obey the truth. In Acts uh, 13, Paul has gone to Cyprus. And there's a man there whose name is Sergius Paulus. But he's got with him a man that the Bible says was a sorcerer. Verse 6 says they had gone through the island to Paphos. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So you got it? This man, Sergius Paulus, wants to hear the truth. He wants to hear the word of God. And this other guy is going to get in the way. Look at it. Verse 8. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's trying to keep him from listening. He's trying to keep him from studying. He's trying to keep him from learning. He's trying to keep him away from the faith. And verse 9 says, Paul, who is all, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool, you fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. God struck this man with blindness because he was a hinderer. And that's how God feels about it when people try to get in the way of you doing what you know the Bible teaches. And then there's family. And I suppose that one may be one of the strongest. Can't tell you the number of times I've gotten down to the nitty gritty in studies with people and all of a sudden there's just a big snag. There's just a huge snag. And basically what people are thinking is if I do that, I'm going to be condemning my mama I'll be condemning my daddy, my grandmother, my granddaddy. And yet sometimes those people have passed on. And I understand the emotions of that. They just feel like, well, if I do what they never did, then I'd be saying they're wrong and I'd be condemning them. There's one passage I've always gone to for that. It's Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Do you remember in Luke chapter 16, there were these two that Jesus talked about. There was the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus had sores all over his body. Best doctor he could get was a dog to lick his sores. Rich man never did anything to help him. The Bible says both of those men died. And Lazarus went to a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. But the rich man found himself in Hades. He found himself in torment. 
So much so that he said, please just send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Can you imagine a place that's so horrible that one drop of water, one drop would be so soothing it seems to him. Just let him dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. He says, no, he can't come to you because there's a great gulf fixed between us and you. He can't come to you and you can't come to him. And then he makes a major plea. Look at verse 27. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, they'll one rise from the dead. The point that I want to make in this is this, that rich man found himself in torment. Did he want his family members there? No. No. He said, just please send Lazarus back that he may warn my brothers. And what I've always tried to point out is, look, it's not my job to sit in judgment. But what do you think your parents would want? What do you think your grandmama would want? Whoever it is that you're thinking about, what do you think they would want? And what I'm trying to point out is beyond all shadow of doubt, they would want you to do what's right. I believe I'm teaching the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But I want to tell you, if somehow one day it turned out that what I was preaching wasn't true, I don't believe that's the case because my finger's on the verse. But if I found myself in torment, I would not want my family members there. I would tell them, I don't care if you have to run contrary to everything I taught. If you find out I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Go with the truth. Go with what's right. Let's talk about one last hinderer. This may be one of the biggest of all. And that's just yourself. Heard a preacher one time say, I've met the enemy. And he is me. We just get in the way of our own self. But the Bible makes it clear that you've got to go. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 24. Jesus said in verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You got to get self out of the way. We sometimes sing the song, my stubborn will at last has yielded. It's just a great moment when you finally say, I'm getting me out of the way. No more excuses. Nothing hindering anymore. I'm coming to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. What hinders? I think this is a big word. What? One thing I know. When somebody has yet to obey the gospel... There's always something hindering. My question is, what is it? What is it? And you know what? You know. 
You know what it is. You know what the what is. It may be that you'd say some of the things that we've already said. You may say, well, it's my family. Or my preacher says. Or, or it's my friends. Or you may say, well, I'm going to surrender sometime down the road. I- I'm going to do that one day. That is so dangerous. In James, the fourth chapter in verse 14... We're told that we better be careful about thinking that there's a whole lot more time. I like what he says in verse 13. Come now. I like the way he starts that. Come now. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and buy and sell and make a profit. Isn't that something? I'm going to go to that city. I'm going to go. I'm going to spend a whole year there. I'm going to buy and sell and make a profit. He's got a whole year laid out. The next verse says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. Don't play with that. The the devil's a chief procrastinator, and he'd love for you to play that game. Well, I'm waiting on so-and-so, and that happens a lot. You're waiting on somebody else. Don't wait on somebody else. It may be that you're saying here tonight, well, but I've already been baptized. I've already been baptized. I want to challenge you with this thought. Was it for a God-given purpose? You know, there's people that baptize, but they teach that you're saved before you're baptized. And what I want you to see and what I'm about to show you, that a person can go down into water and come up out of water, and it might not be Bible baptism at all. It might not be the baptism of Jesus Christ. Don't think that just because you've got the element of water and you go down into water and come up out of water that you've done what the Bible says. Let me give you an example. Go to Acts 19 with me. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. In Acts 19, Paul is traveling and he comes to Ephesus. Verse 1 says he found some disciples. These are disciples of John. They know about John's baptism. And in verse 2, it says, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. I want to tell you something about John's baptism. If you had watched John the Baptist baptize people, you know what happened? He took somebody, he lowered them down into the water, and he brought them back up. It looks identical to this right here. Looks identical to it. They said they had received John's baptism. He says in verse 4, Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So he says John's baptism was preparatory. It was pointing toward the coming of Jesus. It was getting people ready for Jesus. It was pointing forward. But what he points out is that the baptism of Jesus Christ points backwards. The baptism that we're talking about tonight points back to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It points backwards to an established fact of history. And it says in verse 5 that when they heard this... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you have people in the New Testament 
who were, we might say, baptized again. (laughs) Now, I hesitate to use that phrase because if you didn't do it right, it's not really being baptized again because it wasn't really baptism the first time. But we see people getting it right, don't we? We see them getting it right. They realize John's baptism is not what I needed. What I need now is I need to be baptized in the baptism of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more illustration of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20. Now here's my point. Listen carefully to me right here. Paul is going to make the point in 1 Corinthians 11 that you can have the elements of the Lord's Supper, but you don't have the Lord's Supper. You can have bread and you can have fruit of the vine, but you might not have the Lord's Supper at all. Because what these people had done is they had turned this thing into a common meal. They were perverting it. They weren't waiting for others. There were all kinds of abuses. And look at what he says in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. His point is, is that's what you ought to be doing, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You can imagine them saying, well, yes, we are. But in the next verse, in verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Here's the point. You're not partaking of the Lord's Supper. You're eating of your own supper. It's not the Lord's Supper at all. Purpose matters. Mindset matters. What you're doing matters. And so if you're here tonight and maybe you realize, you know, well, I was put down in water and I came up out of water, but it's not what you're talking about tonight. It's not the same thing. Maybe somebody says, well, I I grew up in a clean home. I just don't feel like much of a sinner. I believe that happens a lot. You know, you live up in a, grow up in a sterile home and you just don't feel like much of a sinner. But the point is, you're just as much in danger. One sin is all it takes. To separate us from the God of heaven. So let me ask you. Suppose I sat down with you after church services tonight. And we talked about your life. And we talked about your need for salvation. If I sat down and asked you. What? What? What would you say? What is it? You know. And my question is this, is it worth losing your soul? Transport yourself right now to judgment. Imagine yourself right now standing before God at judgment. Is any hindrance, is anything that's holding you back worth hearing him say, depart from me, I never knew you. We sometimes sing a song that has a lot of the what's in it. It's called, What Will Your Answer Be? We sing it, What Will It Be? What Will It Be? Where Will You Spend Your Eternity? What Will It Be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Sometimes it's just the threshold in your mind that you've got to get past. A while back, I had a study with a man. He'd been coming to church for quite a long time. We got down right to the very last of the study. We had talked about all of these things. And I talked about, I said, sometimes what you've got to do is you've just got to get over the threshold. 
I talked about that moment where Abraham was told to offer Isaac. And he goes with Isaac and he gets there to the top of the mount. He binds Isaac. He puts him on the altar. And the Bible says that he draws back his knife to slay his son in response to God's command. And the voice said, Abraham, Abraham. Stop. Don't lay a hand on the lad. For now I know that you fear God. In that you have not withheld your only son from me. Here's the point I want to make. Genesis says that God stopped him. Hebrews says that he offered him. Now, if God stopped him, how can Hebrews say that he did it? He offered him. i tell you how. Because God knew he has crossed the threshold in his mind. The knife is coming down. He knew if I don't stop him now, he's going to do it. And I said to this guy, I said, what you've got to do is you've just got to get over that threshold and come on with it. And he looked at me and he said, let's go. And that's sometimes what you have to do. You have to have the courage to step out of the aisle tonight and come. What hinders me from being baptized? I'll make quick order of this. In Colossians chapter 2, we made the point last night that if you were to obey the gospel tonight, you might see David's hands at work. But it's not David's hands that are doing the work. It's God's hands. In Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Did you see verse 12? Faith in the working of God. It's God's hands that are at work. It's not a work of man to merit salvation. It's a gracious work of God to save us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My faith is acting, and God is doing the greatest work. And then we finish tonight with this. What hinders me from being baptized? Can you just get everything and everybody out of the way? Can you just pretend tonight that there's nobody in this building but you? Block out all of these people and say to yourself, I'm going to focus on just me. You realize that it's all about you, don't you? In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I remember one time Bill Hall was preaching at Gardendale before I started preaching there. And in Bible class, there was a girl that had been attending, and she just had tears rolling down her eyes. And it's one of those things you preachers know, sometimes that can kind of unnerve you because you think, oh, no, I've upset them in the bad kind of way. And after that, Bill said to her, he said, what? What? She said, you said, if I had been the only person on earth who had ever lived, that Jesus would have died for me. It broke her heart. 
And she responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you quickly that in Acts chapter 8, Philip was having a humdinger of a gospel meeting. He was in the city of Samaria, and I mean people right and left were responding to the gospel. Many people in the city believing and being baptized. And God said, I want you to get up and I want you to go. And you can just imagine if he wanted to, he could have said, do what? <laughs> go where? There's, there's a man who, a man, just one man, just one man. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Gaza. I want you to go now and I want you to talk to him. He leaves a gospel meeting with many responses to go after one. Do you believe God will come after you? I've talked about the, the parable of the lost sheep, and I've oftentimes told the members, you know, he went after that one. I said, the way he feels about the one is the way he feels about the 99. He'd do the same for all of you. He loves you. What hinders me from being baptized? The gospel is that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was resurrected. That's the gospel. The way you respond to the gospel is you basically reenact it. You are crucified with Christ. You're buried with Christ in a watery grave. And you rise with Christ to walk in newness of life. It's just that simple. Death, burial, resurrection. If you're here tonight and you need to obey the gospel, we're going to sing now to encourage you. Will you come? I think we've adequately taught tonight what you need to do. Would you come? Come while we stand and as we sing.